Amen. We find ourselves this morning in Matthew chapter 26. Today happens to be Palm Sunday. Pastor Ryan spoke about that a little bit. And Palm Sunday reminds us of the triumphal entry as Christ enters the city of Jerusalem and a multitude of people are there who hail him as the king who has come, the son of Data. Hosanna is the son of David, they cry on the triumph, day of the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry marks the very beginning of what we often call the Passion Week. This series of events inside of these seven days that lead us through everything we've been reading in the last couple of chapters. We're in the middle of the Passion Week in chapter 26. It takes us through Christ's betrayal and his arrest and the courtroom scenes and the crucifixion and the resurrection. All of those things are now stirring inside of the passage that we are reading. And in fact, what happens in Matthew chapter 26, verse 1, is we take a very distinct turn toward the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is still in and out of the city of Jerusalem. He's staying with friends in a village just outside of the city. He's been with his disciples on the next door hillside, the Mount of Olives. He's been in and out of the city. We've listened to a lot of his teachings. We've watched a lot of his miracles. We've listened to a lot of the confrontations between Jesus and his enemies. But at this point in the gospel, we're done with these long blocks of teaching from Jesus. And now the conspiracy amongst his enemies jumps into action. And we are on our way specifically now to the cross itself. And so as we make this turn in Matthew's gospel, I believe it's incredible what we learn first. The first step that Matthew takes is to contrast petty betrayal with extravagant worship. That's what we're going to read this morning. He contrasts petty betrayal of Jesus Christ with extravagant worship. So here are the steps that we walk through in our passage this morning First of all, Jesus warns his disciples again that the cross is coming. He says, you know what's making its way toward us in this week, the Passover and the crucifixion itself. Then through Matthew's eyes, we're given a glimpse into the conspiracy itself. We watch it begin to actually take shape. And then we read this beautiful story between Jesus and a group of friends and disciples, and specifically this woman, Mary. We watch this extravagant act of worship poured out on Jesus Christ that, does, that just upsets the disciples. And we're going to have to walk through that and deal with that a little bit. And then we learn specifically in Matthew's gospel that one of the disciples has actually decided to exchange Jesus' life for a small sum of money. One of the things for us to keep our eyes on as we go through this passage of Scripture Friends, it really is the case that the human heart can burn, I mean burn, with an intense hatred for Jesus Christ, even amongst religious types. In fact, those are the ones who burn with intense hatred against Jesus Christ in this passage. But it is also true, as we see this morning, that the human heart can pour itself out in this intense and sacrificial act of worship toward our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's begin reading Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all of these sayings, he said to the disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas 
and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. All right, so Matthew opens this section of his gospel by saying, now that Jesus was done with all of those teachings. Remember, the last three chapters has been this long teaching. The last two chapters has been this really intense teaching about uh, the coming of the day of the Lord. The disciples had asked the question, what's the sign of your return and of the coming of the end of the age? And Jesus answers that in two chapters, 24 and 25. And for the last chapter and a half, Jesus' theme has been stay awake, be ready, don't let down your guard because the Son of Man will come at an hour that you just do not expect. It's been this really intense time of teaching between Jesus and his disciples about his return to the world. Well, Christ won't return unless he goes away first. And in fact, that's where we're headed now inside of this story in the next couple of chapters. So here's what Jesus says, and I love the way he puts it to the disciples. Now, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and that the Son of Man is going to be crucified. As we've gone through Matthew's gospel and we've even put it together with other stories and the other three gospels, we know that Jesus has predicted at least three times to his disciples that he would be betrayed he would be turned into the hands of wicked men, that they would crucify him on the cross, and he would raise again from the dead on the third day. At least three times Jesus has predicted that with the disciples. And though every single time, just about every single time, it's confused them and baffled them what all of that means, Jesus can come to this point with the disciples and say, now you know that two things are happening. You know that what's normal this time of year, the Passover is coming in two days, that particular celebration. And you know that the Son of Man, I, am going to be crucified. The issue of it being the Passover is actually important to the story of the passion, to what Christ is doing, to what God is accomplishing for his people. So it's important for us to think for just a moment about what the Passover means. The Passover for the Jewish people is this annual celebration that commemorates the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. It is the beginning of, uh, it is the, beginning of the exodus. They make their way out of slavery, and they're making their way through the wilderness now into the promised land. And, and the Passover marks that night that is in the book of Exodus, the last of the plagues that God brings upon the nation of Egypt, and it releases the people of God. So every year since then, the, the, the marking of this Passover has been enormously important for the people of God because it means their salvation from slavery in the Old Testament. In that story that you can read a little bit about in Exodus chapter 12, God tells his people that on this one particular night, you're supposed to sacrifice a lamb from among your flock. And it has to be a lamb that is without spot and without blemish. It's the most perfect one that you have in your flock. You sacrifice it on that night and you take the blood of the lamb and you put it on the doorposts and then you eat the rest of that lamb. You invite your neighbors and all of your family and you feast on the rest of the lamb. It's interesting. Jesus says, eat everything. Don't leave, every, don't leave anything untouched till morning. And the idea is, is that when the morning comes, they're gonna gather up their stuff and they're gonna make their way out of Egypt. So they have to be ready for this. 
And when the angel of death comes over the nation of Egypt, the people whose houses have their mantles or their doorposts covered with the blood of the lamb, they're saved from the wrath of God on that night. So this is an enormously important celebration. As many pilgrims as possible have crammed their way into the city of Jerusalem so that they could celebrate the Passover and remember what God has done because on that night, God's people were spared by the sacrifice of a lamb. That's the image that was being built. It's important because that's what's going to happen on the cross itself. The Passover that happens in Exodus 12 and is celebrated a couple of nights from this moment. This is a temporary signal that sends us to the eternal reality of Jesus Christ, that God's people are saved from the wrath of God by the sacrifice of his lamb. For my money, one of the most dramatic moments in all of Scripture happens in the book of Revelation. John the Revelator is there at the beginning of Revelation chapter 5. And as he stands in the presence of God himself, he sees God on his throne and he sees this scroll with seven seals and the call goes out, who is worthy to unseal and unroll and read this scroll? And no one in all of heaven is worthy to do this. And so John the Revelator actually begins to weep because no one is worthy. And as he is weeping, some other heavenly being comes up and wraps their arm around John and says, don't cry, John, don't weep. For the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. So John's told that the lion of the tribe of Judah is on his way. And John says, and I lifted my eyes and I saw a lamb as it had been slain. For all of eternity, our conquering king is the sacrificial lamb that washes God's children as white as snow, spares us from his wrath, and he is our conquering king. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, is going to be sacrificed. I mean, we're, we're on our way into some pretty powerful things in the story of Jesus Christ and his people And then Matthew does this. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. (laughs) That's what happens in this next passage. While that conversation's going on, over here we have an entirely different conversation. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, we can't do this during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So back now at the palace of the high priest, those who have enough power to make this happen, enough influence to make this happen, have gathered inside of his palace and the plot to actually arrest and kill Jesus begins to take shape. Now you and I have known since about Matthew chapter 12 that the Pharisees had started to plot to destroy him. So this has been brewing for a long time, but it's on this night that it actually begins to take shape. And they say, well, we need to do this in stealth. They need stealth. They've tried over and over and over again to separate Jesus from the crowds, to create some sort of confrontation where they could catch him inside of his words and get him in trouble or turn the people against him. And they have failed every single 
time. And they end up looking bad, as a matter of fact, when they do that with Jesus over and over. And then we remember, especially on Palm Sunday, that not that long ago, a large number of people in the city of Jerusalem hailed him as king as he came into the city. So they know that they have a potential confrontation on their hands. They have potentially an uncontrollable confrontation on their hands if they arrest Jesus in the wrong way at the wrong time. So they need to do this quietly. And actually, it would really help if they have a man on the inside. The plot is taking shape. Now, if you're used to the, um, the story of Easter and Resurrection Day, if you're used to the gospel story, we kind of know the, the basics of what happens. And Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, and there's this um, enmity between him and the religious leaders, and they're the ones who concoct to do X, Y, and Z. And we sort of know the rough and ready pieces of the story already, but I think it is worth sometimes taking a step back and thinking through what is happening here. This is an extreme reaction to Jesus Christ. It's not, well, at least they're done with. We need to silence him. We need to marginalize him. Hopefully his ministry won't last very long. Maybe we can separate some of his disciples from him. Maybe we can just kind of let it sort of peter out and go away because we just don't like this Jesus. That's one kind of reaction to a teacher like this that you don't like. The other reactions are the other end of the spectrum, and that is we need to kill him. This is extreme reaction to Jesus Christ. How does that happen? I find this fascinating because this kind of thing still happens in the hearts of human beings when you begin to talk about Jesus Christ. Human beings, a lot of times, still have these kinds of extreme reactions to him. When we watch the life of Jesus Christ and the kinds of things that he does, we know already that Jesus does the unacceptable and the unexpected, things that they would not normally do, things that they had taught were not normal, were not common, were not the kinds of things that appropriate people and teachers and rabbis ought to do. Jesus continues to do those kinds of things. It's unacceptable to them, but he does it. It's unexpected by them, but he continues to do it. And Jesus, over and over again, exposes the human heart. We've watched even in just the last few chapters, as Jesus does things like he touches and he heals people who should not be touched and who should not be healed. Inside of the temple grounds, we find Jesus early on in the Passion Week touching and healing the sick and the lame. And we learn then that the religious teachers had taught that if you were sick and lame, you didn't belong inside of the temple grounds because there was something wrong with you. Not only does Jesus bring them into the temple grounds, he heals them inside of the temple grounds. Guys, this is the Jesus that we follow. I mean, he's upsetting all of these apple carts, some of them metaphorical and some of them literal inside of the Passion Week. Jesus, over and over again, he treats women and children with an unusual amount of respect and kindness that just was uncommon for the religious leaders of that day. Jesus, over and over again, rejects the controlling and cold legalism of the scribes and the Pharisees and enters into open confrontation with them. And they don't win any of those confrontations, and so it's growing more and more and more tense between them and Jesus. And Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God. Remember, his parables begin within the kingdom of heaven is like. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom of heaven is near, so I need you to repent. 
Jesus is talking a lot about the kingdom of God, something that the religious leaders want, and they seek. They want to see it actually come to fruition. But Jesus talks about it in ways that they don't like, and in fact, ways that sometimes shock them. And I want to come back to this thought, that an encounter with Jesus Christ exposes the human heart in ways that any encounter with any other human or any other religious leader just cannot do. Because an encounter with Jesus Christ is an encounter with the God who created you. And so he continues to open up the human heart. And when the human heart gets exposed, we do some strange things sometimes. When we come into that kind of encounter with Jesus Christ, we, by and large, have two kinds of decisions to make. And one decision is, well, Christ is all wrong, and he needs to catch up with the times, and we need to change him, and we need to change his words, and we need to change his values to catch up with the times so that he can match my sense of values. Or we can allow Christ to expose our hearts and change us into his likeness. We have those kinds of profound reactions. If we allow ourselves to be exposed before Christ and changed by Christ, it becomes often conviction and humility. Two of the least favorite sermons anybody ever wants to hear. (laughs) As soon as I announce to you that next Sunday morning, guys, we're preaching a hardcore sermon on conviction and humility, how many of you are going to find something else to do next Sunday morning, right? So it's hard for the human heart, but it's life for the human heart. It destroys death in the human heart and opens us up to what only Jesus Christ can do. And it isn't just the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests and all these people. This is how we often reject Jesus Christ. He doesn't meet my expectations. He doesn't do it the way I think he ought to do it. He doesn't say the things I think he ought to say about things. He doesn't come in the timing in which I expect him to come and do things. He doesn't always meet our expectations, and that rubs us the wrong way with Jesus Christ. And certainly, the disciples are going to have to overcome that as they watch the events of the cross unfold before them. And then, of course, turning over the control of my life to Jesus Christ as Lord It's right, it's good, it's love, it's truth, it's life. But guys, it's hard. And it's hard for the Christian who's been doing this for years and years and years and years. Expose ourselves to Christ and he grants us life because Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. But this is part of the stark, the the, the powerful contrast that happens in our passage of Scripture this morning. There is this colossal display of rejection and selfishness and, in the end, murderous evil. And then we get this extravagant act of worship on the other side. And we watch these two things unfold side by side. So let's begin reading. Let's move on now to verse 6, and the story goes like this. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. That's a strong word for angry. (laughs) They were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. 
But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So Matthew tells us that Jesus is in the house of a group of friends in this little village called Bethany, not that far from the city of Jerusalem. He's in the house of Simon the leper, and we don't know exactly who Simon the leper is, but we know from the other gospel stories that he's probably connected to the friend circle or the family circle of Lazarus, the man that Jesus raised from the dead, and Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha. So now think about this for a second. Who's inside of this room? Jesus is there inside of his room with his disciples and Simon the leper and Lazarus and Mary and Martha. There's a guy in that room who has been raised from the dead. Then there's this subtle little detail inside of this story that isn't mentioned explicitly, but he's called Simon the leper. Now, if Simon the leper is in a house in the middle of a village with everybody else inside of his house, that probably means that Simon the leper is no longer a leper, but has been healed. Who probably healed him? Jesus. (laughs) So we're in a room now with Jesus and his disciples and a man who's been healed from leprosy and a man who walked out of the grave and was raised from the dead by the power of Jesus Christ. This is quite the brunch. There's somebody else there. His name is Judas. Now, hang on to that thought and let's not jump too far ahead of ourselves. But this room is filled with people who have been touched by Jesus Christ. And it says there that this woman takes this alabaster flask of um, expensive, very expensive ointment, Matthew says, and pours it out on Jesus Christ. The woman, we know her name from the other gospel accounts. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and the sister of Martha. And it says she pours out a flask of perfume on Jesus. Matthew calls it a very expensive ointment. Other gospels use this word that maybe give us a sense of what the, what the perfume is actually made out of, this spice called spikenard, that in Mary's day, in Jesus' day, was an incredibly rare perfume that only came from the Himalayas of India. So how on earth does Mary, this simple woman in this simple village with a simple family, end up with this very expensive flask of incredibly rare perfume and ointment? It's highly unlikely that she bought this. It's way too expensive for someone like her. It's probable that this is a family heirloom, been passed down from mother to daughter and mother to daughter for who knows how long. Now, the flask, what we know of flasks like this in Jesus' day and age and, the, and, the why it, and how it contained what it contained and so forth, the only way to open that alabaster flask was to break it. There wasn't a seal you could pop open and close conveniently. You'd actually, actually break the thing open. So she breaks this flask, and she just pours it all out on Jesus, every drop of this very expensive ointment. When she does that, it provokes an indignant response from the rest of the disciples. 
They watch that thing break. They can't believe their eyes as this woman just dumps it all out on Jesus Christ. Here's a reflective moment, as a matter of fact, that might be useful for us as we think of it through the week. Before we walk through the rest of what happens in the conversation, the disciples and Jesus' reaction to this, to this, can you imagine what it would be like for Christ to be in your home reclining at your table and you take whatever is of most value to you, financial value, memory value, family value, and you just give it away to Jesus. Could I do that? Could I do that? That's exactly what Mary does in this moment. And what she does, it makes the disciples angry at what she has. And in fact, the other gospels tell us that it's the disciple Judas who leads the charge in the complaint. The other, the other gospels tell us it's not just very expensive, but the, the flask and the perfume inside of it is worth what they call 300 denarii. Now, a denarii was a day's wage in that day, and so 300 denarii is roughly a year's worth of salary. So if you take one year's worth of your salary, what kind of perfume could you buy for that? And then you just pour it out on Jesus Christ. So the disciples are thinking, I can't believe what she's done with this money. So to break the flask and to pour it out on Jesus like that was a waste. It's as if the disciples are saying, Jesus isn't worth that. We could have done something more valuable with all of that. <laughs> now, the disciples don't put it that way. It was a waste to do that on Jesus. I love the way that they put it. The flask could have been sold, and we could have done all kinds of wonderful things for the poor. Think of all the meals we could have purchased, the cloaks, the sandals, Think of all these things that we could have purchased if Mary had just done something smart with that bottle of very expensive ointment. Their complaint about what Mary does is masked in piety. Oh, we could have done magnificent things. In fact, it's a kind of pious practicality. Imagine all the good that we could have done. But there's something else at stake in this particular enactment, in this conversation. There's something else happening here. In fact, there is someone else who is involved inside of this enactment. Jesus is involved. Notice this. Mary pours out her most precious possession on him in worship and in preparation for his burial, Jesus says. Mary pours out her most precious possession in worship for Jesus Christ. And the disciples are indignant about that. One of the great preachers of the uh, Christian church is a guy many, many years ago by the name of Alexander McLaren. As he commented on this passage of Scripture, I want you to hear what he has to say about the disciples' reaction to Mary. He says this, Selfishness blames love for extravagance. Selfishness blames love for extravagance, which to it seems folly and waste. The disciples chimed in with the objection, not because they were superior to Mary in wisdom, but because they were inferior in worship. I love that. 
They weren't by their expression of frustration with what Mary did, expressing superior wisdom. They were expressing inferior worship of Jesus Christ. So Mary really comes out here in very powerful ways. So guys, true worship of Jesus Christ may to us sometimes be shocking, but to Jesus it is always beautiful. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus says. Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. It's remarkable that Jesus does not scold her for what she does. Instead, instead he calls it beautiful. And it's just a magnificent little word. It just means lovely. It's good. It's admirable. It's beautiful. As I thought through this, it, it dawned on me that the moment we begin talking about beauty, we leave dollar signs behind. We're not putting dollar signs on how beautiful something is. Well, that's a million dollars beautiful. Well, that's about $27.59 beautiful. We don't think that way. Things are just beautiful, and they don't have that kind of price tag on it. So Jesus dismisses the money, and he recognizes this just as beautiful, what she has done to him. So what some of these pious and grumpy disciples saw as a waste, Jesus sees as beautiful. And it was beautiful because what she did was done to worship him. Not a drop of that ointment was wasted on Jesus Christ. In fact, friends, it was the best thing she could have done with the most valuable thing that she had. That's the best thing she could have done with the most valuable thing she had was to pour it all out to honor and worship Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul thinks like this too. It's not just, you know, some family heirloom that sits on the shelf that we're thinking about. We're thinking about the things in our lives or even our lives themselves. The most precious things that we have are never wasted when they're poured out on Jesus Christ. And this is exactly how the Apostle Paul thinks about it. I want to read a couple of passages. The first comes from the book of Philippians, verse 17. And he's talking about the life and the faithfulness of the Philippians and how thankful he is for it. And then he says this in Philippians 2, 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. If even my life, if I personally, he writes this from prison on his way to execution, if my life is poured out to the last drop on top of your faith for the cause of the gospel, I'm glad for that. There could be nothing else I could do with my life that would make more use of it than to pour it out for Jesus Christ. This is not the only time the Apostle Paul says something like this. Back in the book of Acts, he meets with the elders at the city of Ephesus. He spent many years there. He had doubtlessly grown close to several of these folks. But then on the seashore, he has this little farewell address with them. These are the things that he wants them to hear, the last things that he says. And part of that conversation happens in Acts chapter 20, in verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus 
to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In the end, the best thing I can do with my life is to pour it out for the cause of Jesus Christ. Whatever that looks like for you and for me, there's never a moment of that, a second of that, a breath of that that is wasted. In fact, as I, as I thought this through, I think it's very important for probably some of us, including myself in this room, to hear this. Nothing you have ever done for Jesus Christ has been wasted. He sees it as beautiful. What you've done for him is beautiful. Whatever it is he's called you to do, however it turned out, if you did it for him, it's beautiful. I love that. In this conversation with the disciples, Jesus says, look, he says this interesting thing to us, that the poor you're going to have with you always, but I'm not going to be here with you very much longer. And it's not just the cross, it's the resurrection and then his ascension as well. And when Jesus says that, he doesn't say that to demean the poor or our responsibility to the poor, but to help us understand how important he is. Taking care of the poor was a critical part of Jewish and Old Testament worship especially during festivals like the Passover and so forth. And it remains critical for the Christian as well. And in fact, these very disciples will have plenty of time and opportunity to do that very thing. And their letters are filled with that kind of thing to each other and to church after church after church. But what the disciples say at this moment is just a lame excuse for criticizing what Mary does. So where Judas and the disciples saw money, Jesus sees worship. She has done it, Jesus says. (laughs) She has done it to prepare me for my burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So Jesus praises her for what she does, and he etches what she does in stone. So the disciples gripe at this moment. It's just something that's forgettable. But Mary's worship of Jesus is immortalized. There's a lesson here that we need to take hold of. Jesus has absolutely no problem telling me that he is worthy of everything. He has no problem at all telling his disciples, I'm worth every drop of that and more. There's no problem telling you and me that I am worthy of all of your worship and all of your honor and all of your lives and all of your praise. I want to jump back into the book of Revelation chapter 5 again after John sees the Lamb of God as it had been slain. All of heaven erupts in this chorus of praise and worship to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And so at this moment where eternity of eternities is beginning with God and his people and his plan is unfolding and coming to a close, all of heaven sings this anthem of praise and worship to Jesus Christ. And here's part of what happens in Revelation 5 beginning in verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, everything that has breath says this, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Worthy, worthy, worthy is Jesus Christ. And he has no problem telling me that he is worthy of everything. Now, part of what's interesting in a moment like this is that it's actually fairly common for those who criticize the faith to say, well, that means then that Christians serve this arrogant and foreboding and overbearing kind of God who just demands and demands and demands and demands. Well, let's think about that for a second. If there's any human being on the face of the planet who tells you that they are worthy, that's just nothing but arrogance, idolatry, and wickedness. If any human being tells you that they or their ideology is worthy of your praise and honor and worship, it's arrogance, idolatry, and it's wickedness. But if there is this being in the universe who is perfect in holiness, perfect in power, perfect in love, perfect in justice, perfect in everything that he is in his character and nature, and he says, I am worthy of all of your worship, that's just reality. That's just stating what is true. And it turns out that Jesus happens to be that man, perfect in all his ways. I am worthy of all of your worship and everything about you. So God can say over and over and over in Scripture in all kinds of different ways. He can tell you and me, seek me with all your heart. Right? When Jesus tells me that, it's in fact loving and right and good. And when I learn how to get worship right, then everything else in my life is going to begin to find its rightful place under Jesus Christ. It's an amazing act of worship that comes out of Mary, and we learn these profound things. She opens these doors to us that are just magnificent, and they should be rather stirring to every one of us when we sort of spend time with this story. And then we read the uh, contrast again. So back in Matthew 26 and verse 14, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went out to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. So Judas now sells Christ away to his enemies, or at least he begins the plot. He takes the blood money, and he's ready to go. Remember the scene in that room where all of this takes place, and, and make sure that we understand this. Judas is near to Jesus Christ. For three, three and a half years now, Jesus, or Judas has been witness to the teachings of Jesus Christ, to the miracles of Jesus Christ. He was there probably when Lazarus was raised from the dead. He might have been there when Simon was cured of leprosy. He has seen all of this, and he turns traitor against Jesus Christ. How does that happen? 
inside of the human heart? How does that happen inside of Judas's heart and mind? The Gospels don't give us a lot of details into his psychology. The, the Gospel writers don't say, this is exactly why Judas decided to do this. We know that Judas kept the money back. Was it because of this rebuke that Jesus gives about the money that was kind of the final straw for Judas? He says, we have to get rid of this guy? Maybe. We don't know. There's a possibility that this full name, Judas Iscariot, ties Judas to the, um, to the zealots, the party of the zealots of his day. And what they wanted was a violent overthrow of the Roman Empire. And now that Jesus is on his way to be crucified, that doesn't make sense to him. And so maybe he's just done with this. Is that the case? Maybe. We don't know for sure. But we do see this clearly. This is how deep and how ugly the corruption of the human heart can go when Jesus Christ is not Lord, when something else is. Christ has got to change or he's got to go. And that's how far it goes inside of the heart of Judas, the traitor of Jesus Christ. And this morning, I'm not going to address the question, what's the status of Judas's salvation before or afterwards, but I believe that this is significant one way or another. A disciple close to Jesus falls away. Remember what Jesus has been teaching us for a chapter and a half now. Don't take your relationship with me for granted. Stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. Right? Jesus has been telling this over and over and over. And now we watch the teaching unfold in real time with the guy that we know. He doesn't just fall away. He actually turns Jesus over to those who are going to kill him. Outside of talking about Jesus and the cross and the plan of redemption, Mary really is the heroine of this story. I love the way Michael Card, the, the, the artist and the writer, put it. He said, Mary poured out thousands of dollars in worship upon Jesus. Judas made a few bucks betraying him. 30 pieces of silver. Now, this is such an infamous moment that you and I use that image, that metaphor of 30 pieces of silver to speak of betrayal and blood money and so forth. 30 pieces of silver in the Old Testament was the price of a slave who had been accidentally gored by your ox. So Judas actually betrays Jesus for the price of a slave. This is how corrupt and ugly this moment has become. So when we look at Mary and when we look at Judas and this, con this contrast that's being drawn for us, notice this. The cost of true worship is all that I can afford. The return is more than I can ever make. If you lose your life for my sake, you will find it, Jesus has told us. On the other hand, the return on rejecting Jesus Christ, it's small and it's temporary. The cost for rejecting Jesus Christ is my life. There's one last thought I want to leave us with as we sort of open this section of the Passion Week and make our way to the cross. <clears throat> the shadow is growing longer and darker. The cross is getting closer and closer. The, the betrayal is coming. The uh, trial, the courtroom scenes are coming. Uh, the disciples running away from Jesus in fear in the night that he is arrested. All of this is coming. And in fact, if you're sort of attentive to it, a lot of the events that happen in the next couple of chapters, it says they all happen at night. It's just literally getting darker the way that when we get closer to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's really important that right now, 
in the shadow of the cross, what we learn about is worship and who's worthy of worship and who deserves my worship and all that I have. Just before, what is, in fact, the greatest injustice in human history? We are taught that Jesus is the only person, the one who hangs upon that cross is the only one who is worthy of worship. The moment that is intended to be the enemy's explosion of wrath against the cause of God, the work of God, becomes our victory in Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy. He alone is worthy. Another way of putting it is this. Before the storm hits, our compasses need to be pointed in the right direction. The disciples and Mary, they make it to the resurrection. Judas doesn't. Friends, let's hear the words of Christ again this morning. Stay awake. Be alert. Pay attention to your relationship with Jesus Christ and recognize that He alone is worthy of everything that I have. He alone is to be worshipped. Let's pray.